0: fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, aka Lewis, aka Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level spoilers will likely abound from this point forward, so if you haven't read the book in the title and you plan to one day, tread carefully. But otherwise, whether you're a writer here for advice or a reader here for more content on a book you loved, welcome. I finally picked a more recent release to talk about, so let's get into The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea by Axie O. Uh, Here we are again at another fairy tale retelling. I really don't mean to pick these. Maybe they're just easy to talk about or something, but if you didn't already know, The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea is a retelling of the Korean fairy tale, the tale of Shim Cheong, only off-center, I suppose I would say, by including some of the details, but ultimately inserting a totally new main character, Mina. How, How did I do on all those names? I'm really pushing my pronunciation abilities these days. Don't know if I'm succeeding, but I'm trying. Anyway, this is not, as I had originally thought, Axie O's first book. Um, it is the first book of hers I've read, and it had the coolest ever release date of February 22nd this year, which means that it was released on 2-22-2022. <laughs> The original fairy tale is about a girl, Shim Chiang, who sacrifices herself to the sea so that her blind father can see again. Instead of dying in the ocean, she is taken to the Dragon King, who rewards her for her selfless behavior by allowing her back on Earth, where she becomes empress and restores her father's sight with their reunion. This novel switches it up a bit. The dragon king becomes the sea god. Shim Chiang is given a romance, but not with the emperor, who is, instead, mysteriously vanished. And some world-building details about storms and gods and prayers are added in to explain why anyone would think throwing themselves into the sea in the first place would fix anything. Um, Mina, our main character, has much more agency, making all the story details more causal. She throws herself into the sea in Shim Chiang's place because her brother loves her and finds herself with one month to break the curse put on the sea god, whose wife she is meant to be, so he can save her village from raging storms. There's a love story between her and the guy guarding the sea god, and talk of ribbons of fate and ancestors and all that jazz. I really liked it, so let's get into it. I am first going to comment on the unimportant detail of how stunning this cover is. (laughs) It is colorful and bright. I find that a lot of fantasy covers are sort of dark, or they use a lot of reds, which is just not my favorite color. I get it, blood, right, but I love finding books that will brighten my bookshelves without me having to resort to buy books, I don't actually like to read. Uh, If you haven't seen the cover, look it up, it is fantastic. I think there are a couple different versions out there, but I have the one with the actual girl on the cover and I am tremendously impressed. I usually don't like humans on book covers. To be really honest with you, sometimes people gush about book covers and then I see them and just feel blah about it. The prominence of a human girl on the cover of a fantasy book is basically proportionate to the degree to which I will hate it. (laughs) It's probably a genre difference, really, because covers have genre tropes as well, but there's something about the design of this one that's classy and not realistic, and so it feels like art, and I loved it. Secondly, I want to talk about how this is a standalone. Now, standalones aren't uncommon per se in the YA world. This year, I also read Small Favors and it was also a fairy tale retelling standalone. But series are certainly the bigger deal in both fantasy and YA, and even most retellings. So, YA fantasies are almost always series. <laughs> and I love this normally, right? Like, I am a fantasy series girl. I love binging them, I love the depth, I love the achievement of completing a series. But I won't lie, I find that sometimes I'm just in the mood for a complete story within 400 pages or less. This is not something I thought in high school, but it is something I think now. After reading the entire Witcher series, which comprised 8 books, I was just in the mood for something on the shorter side, something that would bring a story to completion within a couple sittings, and I've got to believe that whether it's for time constraints or various other reasons, I'm not alone in this. Reading series is an enormous time commitment, not to mention the fact that you often have to wait significant periods of time for the next book in that series. So you would think that if series were considered one book, standalones would sell better, right? That standalones would be more of the norm. People would read more standalones than series because it just takes less time to read standalones than it does to read series. But that is apparently not the case. I saw a TikTok video, because you know, I'm a TikToker now, that readers often say they want standalones, but publishers are noticing that when they provide standalones, readers do not buy them the way they claim they will, and certainly not the way they buy series. Now, I have not fact-checked this. Uh, I assume some of this comes down to the fact that series are just more books to buy, and that's going to sway the statistics, but let's just assume this is true. Let's assume that people are buying series more than standalones. I think the main problem with standalones is that it's hard to write a deep, compelling world and story within just one book. I think writers can struggle with this, me included. I have written one full standalone book that I'm in the editing stages of now, but I admittedly wrote it in a fantasy world I'd already created and written an entire series in. It is tough to create a world big enough to be interesting but small enough to fit into a standalone. Fairy tale retellings seem to be the only place where I see this consistently done well, and this book was no exception, but I wonder if that's why readers don't pick up standalones as often. The kind of reader that likes a shorter, complete story probably doesn't go for the fantasy genre because fantasy fans are probably more likely to be the sort to want depth and long-term development and all that. You know, things that the fantasy genre just tends to provide and that series tend to more easily provide as well. But I have a couple reasons in mind why we as readers should maybe make a more apparent effort to buy and review and consume standalones so that they continue to get published. One, you don't have to wait for a sequel. I'm the kind of reader that often won't buy the first book in a series until at least the next few are out, usually not until the whole series is out entirely. This is apparently bad for writers, because publishers can't properly gauge interest in the series if you do this, but I like to binge. I like to wait for box sets. I like to know for sure that the series will reach a close, because there are a few series I've started that the authors decided to just drop, and I am not emotionally capable of handling that. So typically I wait. With standalones, none of this is a problem. Interest in the book can be properly gauged because no readers are waiting on sequels. They might wait for the price to drop or for reviews to come in, but they don't need to wait for a sequel. It's also easier to take a risk, money and time-wise, on a standalone if you are a reader. If I buy the first book in a series, unless it is truly terrible, I am committing to finishing that series. And sometimes I finish terrible ones too. (laughs) With a standalone, your commitment only lasts for one book. So it's easier to justify spending the money or spending the time on a new author or on a new release when you know there isn't another shoe about to drop. So all in all, I think readers and publishers can sort of equally benefit from the existence of standalone stories, and I don't think new writers should shy away from writing them. I know there seems like a lot of glory in the idea of writing a series, but you don't have to come out of the gate with a series, and writing a standalone first can really help you hone your brevity and clarity and world-building skills in a way that will be super beneficial when you get down to writing a bigger series. The rules don't change just because there are more words at play, and so writing a standalone first can be a good way to make sure you understand the difference between fluff and story, and necessary scenes versus fun scenes. It's gonna give you a feeling of accomplishment sooner, and probably keep you going. And so, I, I think it can be really beneficial to start with a standalone. There's nothing wrong with starting with a series, um, but even in the fantasy genre, it is an option to go standalone to learn, to begin, and I I wouldn't shy away from it just because it seems to be a little more unpopular. Reason two, standalones provide great breaks between big series. Again, I love series, but reading series after series in a row can be exhausting, especially if you're the type of reader who likes to be constantly in the middle of the book and gets very emotionally invested. I am speaking from personal experience. <laughs> I need buffers every once in a while. I will read a nonfiction or a classic here and there to break up the series I've been reading, but sometimes I'm in a fantasy mood even. the middle of the buffer period. So yes, it's going to be smaller in scale, but it's still really satisfying to be able to turn to a standalone fantasy that I know won't take over my brain until the foreseeable sequel, but will still provide an epic story. As a writer it is also a significant break to write a standalone. Like I said, I'm working on editing the very first standalone I've ever written and it is such a different experience from writing a series. In some ways it's easier because I don't have to think beyond that book. I don't have to think about an ending several books out or get lost in characters from book to book. When editing and when writing, I only have to think about the story right in front of me, not where it's been and not where it's going. Obviously, standalone stories have to progress, they change over the course of their story, but since they are inherently fewer pages than series, it's easier to keep all the details in order in your head. So if you're a writer who loves writing series, don't shy away from standalones just because they're simpler. This can be a great way to recharge, to get your creative juices flowing, or to explore some ideas that are smaller scale to you but are still worth pursuing being smaller scale is not a negative thing. It's not a bad thing. A smaller scale just means that the story is more focused. And so this is a really good thing when done right, just like anything. Um, And so I don't think it is a negative. That's not what I mean when I say smaller scale. I just mean that it takes on a different level of focus and that can be totally worth reading and writing. Alright, as per usual, it is now time for some world-building talk. I have said a couple times now that standalones are inherently smaller scale, and I stand by this, but The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea manages to feel really large in scope somehow, despite being only about 320 pages long. It's about gods and goddesses and emperors and the afterlife, but it does focus in on one really small sector of that world and how the people... affected by those things so while i would say it goes deep with the afterlife thoughts it doesn't go broad like with warring nations Um, so that's also what i mean by smaller scale i think this is a great strategy for a fantasy standalone go deep not wide in a series you can typically do both i wouldn't say that i think series sacrifice depth Um, but in a standalone really home in on that depth no pun intended. You don't have to shy away from big topics or stakes like death and the afterlife. You just need to focus on particular aspects of them. This book also had a pretty large cast of characters, from Mina's whole family to many friends and enemies she makes in the afterlife beneath the sea, and I was able to keep all of them straight. I think this is in part due to the fact that basically all of them have very different names from each other and from names I am used to. This is because it is Korean-based, and I am not Korean, so most of the names were unique to me. But I also think it's because the names were so different from each other. Very few of them started with the same letter, and there are varying numbers of syllables in each. It's a small thing, but if you're writing a lot of characters into your book, making the names unique from each other is a great way to help readers differentiate them this world in general is just so cool. It takes place mainly in the Sea God City, which is underwater and it's like an afterlife magical place. So there are like whales and schools of fish swimming in what is basically the air. There are also a bunch of palaces we visit and different scenery, but I love this idea of sea creatures swimming in the air. It sounds kind of weird to say, but That imagery was so distinctive to this book in this city, it's not the kind of detail I necessarily need to know more about. There's nothing particularly mysterious about it or anything, but it adds character to the world, which is exactly the kind of detail you want to include in a book that isn't part of a series. Don't leave me with too many questions, but still provide some color. And where did this cool world-building detail idea come from? The ocean, the starting place of the story, the location, fundamentally, of the story as a whole. When you're building a world for your book, think about where it's located in space. It seems very simple, but think about that. Think about how that orientation might change certain basic details. Are there more moons or suns? Are there different creatures? Are there creatures in places they aren't supposed to be? Are the colors different? Is the temperature different? Does time function the same? All of these things have to do fundamentally with where your setting is located comparatively in space to what we find normal. So look for that, for some inspiration, for cool world-building details that aren't necessarily going to come back around in a twist or a plot point, but are just there for the sake of the setting, the environment, that coolness factor. It doesn't take up a lot of our time, it doesn't take up a lot of space in the word count, but it creates a richness to the world, which is super important in fantasy and is going to really make a standalone fantasy compare to series. This book also uses, unsurprisingly, fairy tales as a storytelling technique. I don't know if they are other actual Korean fairy tales, but there are a few sprinkled throughout the story told by Mina to echo the main theme and communicate the heart of this character. Not only is this cool because it is a fairy tale retelling itself, but the stories Mina chooses and the fact that they were passed down to her by her grandmother makes them a world-building detail as well. Fairy tales are fundamentally echoes of the culture they come from. You see patterns in them. European fairy tales were often warnings. Middle Eastern fairy tales, like A Thousand and One Nights, are often adventures. Asian fairy tales are often explanations for unanswered phenomenon. So providing fairy tales within the world you're creating for your book can add a lot of insight into what the people of that world believe, what they hold dear, how their worldview has evolved, and what you're trying to say as the message of your book. Mina sharing her own fairy tales with the sea god and other members of his kingdom allows her to show a spirit world, what it's like to be human where she's from. It is a communication technique for her, but it's also a communication technique for the author. We as readers are learning more ambiguous details about the world, building a more solid picture in our mind without too many restricting details. You can use fairy tales to echo your main theme, to steer the plot forward with realizations or explanations, to make parallels, and they can, to be honest, be great ways to info dump in a way that won't feel like info dumping. Something I really liked in this book is that Oh actually included the original tale of Shim Chiang as a fairy tale Mina makes up for the sea god. Essentially, when Mina and Shim Chiang get sent back to the real world, which is something that happens in the original and something Mina wistfully tells the sea god about, we find out that the original fairy tale, what Oh found inspiration in, is in this story the glamorized romanticized version of what really happened like we as readers are finally getting the true story so the original fairy tale is built into this retelling as the nicer wishful version mina wants that partially but not fully comes true because she in the form of the story asks for it like i said earlier mina is a new character i don't believe she's in the original so O had a lot of freedom to do what she wanted here At its core, this story is still what the original was, only Shim Chiang is a side character, one who does everything from the original, while details are added in with our new main character Mina to add some depth and some twists. That interwoven detail is super cool, and it allows for us as readers to see the inspiration, but still get a far deeper story while some of the story details have been changed, like Shim Chiang marries Mina's brother instead of the emperor, ultimately the integrity of the story is the same. It's just that that original fairy tale is the simplified version, and this is the grittier, real, more in-depth version, and I think that was a really cool strategy, and even not knowing the original very well, it I think is what really made this book work for me. Now I want to talk about some of the specific lines from the book because I think there was some really cool writing here. Uh, So one of my favorite things an author can do and something that I really advise you to try because it can help solidify your theme and also just make your story so, so beautiful is to repeat your opening line at some point late in the book or at least the suggestion of your opening lines. Someone once said, I don't remember who, that the first line of your book should echo the entire theme of the book. I would say the first couple paragraphs of this book did that. It doesn't necessarily have to be that very first line, Um, but this book opened with the statement that Mina had two paths before her, the ocean or going home, and how she had the ability to choose or not choose according to her fate. By the end, the ocean has become her home, but she still has these choices. And so those same lines were taken from the beginning and restated only a few pages from the end. It's not quite a circular ending. Circular endings come full circle and end of the story in the same place it starts, like The Outsiders, if you've ever read that one. Um, and Mina ends in a completely different place, redefining her home and what she wants out of life, even though the integrity of those desires have stayed the same. Those repeated lines are just sort of this cue to the reader that things are wrapping up. They're a chance for the author to drive home their theme and show how it has spread across the whole book, growing in unexpected directions. I like it a lot when the last line is the first line with a different context, but sometimes you want to end with a future direction or with something sweet or something hopeful, and that's not always going to fit as simultaneously your first sentence. So to cue the end, repeat the line a few pages before that concluding line to still get that similar full circle effect. In this book, with that image of two paths, she can choose being used in only those two places in the novel. When we read it the second time, we are hearkened back to the opening and we can reflect on how much things have changed for Mina and how much she herself has changed. This idea of two paths is heavily related to our theme, which is this idea of making our own choices. There's a certain debate in, like, the world about whether or not things are destined or chosen. This is not an uncommon theme, but this book does a great job of illustrating how many things can be both. Mina, for instance, chooses that initial first path to the ocean rather than home. She wants to save her brother, and she sacrifices herself so he can be with the girl he loves. That's something Mina chose, and it's something that has consequences, because both people in the living world and in the spirit world afterlife wonder if she is still capable of fulfilling the role of the sea god's bride when she chose herself rather than allowing fate to choose her. The people of her world even sacrifice Shim Chong anyway after her, worrying that Mina isn't enough. So at first, it seems totally about choice alone. There's also a continuous image of this ribbon of fate, and it changes over time, which implies that choice changes destiny. But it doesn't seem to be saying that destiny serves no role at all. Later, it is revealed that Shin, our love interest guarding the sea god with a mysterious past, is the actual sea god who gave his power to an emperor he cared for so he could live forever too. When this is revealed, Mina is not surprised. She has put all the pieces together already, and she's asked how, how she could have known that. She replies that she knew Shin was the sea god because she is the sea god's wife and he is the one she loves, which implies a certain hand of destiny, that destiny was telling her who the real sea god was the whole time. And so while this book is strongly about choosing the path for your own life, it also seems to be making a certain point that destined things are often destined because they are the things we truly want most. She loves Shin, and he is the sea god, both destined and chosen. So letting fate lead the way is not the same as letting the world lead your way. It's an idea I've always found really intriguing, and i side note, recently rewatched Forrest Gump, and I think that's the theme of that movie too. But I liked seeing it play out in this story, in this setting, how Mina could both choose Shin and her fate because they were one and the same, but still by choice. I don't really have any advice on this particular point, I just thought that was really cool, and maybe it'll spark an idea for you about a theme that fits your own work in progress. Okay, so I also picked out my favorite line from this novel because it was just so obvious upon reading it that it was going to be my favorite. It's said in a sort of negative way about the sea god, who's kind of lazy and melancholy throughout the book, so I'm not sure what it says about me that this is the line I connected to most, but it also seems like something most readers and writers are going to be able to relate to. So this is the line. Stories are both an escape from the truths of the world and the only way to see them clearly. Which basically just sums up every reason I love being a writer and want to be a published author one day soon. I think this is true. Profoundly true. I think this is why I'm always so confused when people tell me they don't like to read. Not that reading is the only way to consume a story, but because it's my preferred way, it's so weird to me that someone else wouldn't enjoy that. Stories shape cultures. I think this is why fairy tales carry power, even over time, why we still retell them, why we make up our own even now as writers, and why readers want them. Stories are an escape. We get to create our own worlds where the rules work as we want them to and people act the way we want them to, within reason, of course, because we want the story to be good, but we basically have this control as writers, a distraction from the often unjust or unglamorous world. And as readers, we can trust certain writers to take us on a journey we know we will enjoy, or that will inevitably end well, or that will at least strike a chord of truth in our lives. But just because stories are an escape doesn't mean they're not also profoundly true that's ultimately why they have value to us at all, because they provide clarity on issues that the world muddies too much for us to see clearly. Stories can be deep while still simplifying things, allowing us to think, giving us context to the ambiguous thoughts we have. There's emotion to them, but also logic. And then they allow us to communicate all of that to each other, letting the message spread and take on different forms for different people based on what they need and want and believe at various times in their lives. We really do see Clearly through stories. So, this line is basically the definition of my life and all my life's ambitions. I should get a plaque with this on it or something. I feel like most of you fellow writers out there will be able to strongly relate to that idea too, so go forth this week with that in mind. On that note, that's all I have for this episode. If you haven't read this book yet and you like fairy tale retellings, definitely do definitely read it but either way thank you for listening and I will see you on the next page